0: hello welcome to science factual prepare yourself for factual download sequence commencing Howdy there, folks. Reese Hendrick here, host of Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. For this episode, we'll be taking a look at comedian, director, and trained puppeteer Jordan Peele with a focus on his latest film, Nope, hence the opening track for the episode. I got to sit down with guest comedian Julian Gray at Growler's Tap Room on Southeast 82nd and interview him about the director after his set at the Tap That Showcase that takes place there on Saturday nights make sure you stick around until the end of the episode for a hilarious set from julian to start things off let's get into the origin story of jordan peele he's a super funny and interesting person who actually cares about the content they're putting out there and that's just a regular old fact not a personal fact aka an opinion Jordan Hayworth Peel is an American actor, comedian, and filmmaker who was born in New York City on February 21, 1979. Happy belated birthday. His father, Hayward Peel, was African American from a North Carolina family, while his mother, Lucinda J. Williams, is white and has English with more distant Scottish and Dutch ancestry. She's the daughter of Earl Hayworth Williams and Josephine Helen Taylor and has roots in the United States going back to colonial America from the 1600s, specifically Maryland and Massachusetts. Peel last saw his father when he was seven years old and was raised by his single mother on Manhattan's Upper West Side. As a child, Jordan Peel appeared on a March 1994 ABC news special called President Clinton Answering Children's Questions. The question he asked President Clinton was inspired by his own family situation. Quote, Um, yeah, I was just wondering, how can you help the families where there's a mom and she's taking care of a kid or kids and the father isn't willing or isn't able to pay child support? Valid question, to which the president responded.
1: When I was in England, I experimented with marijuana in a time of two and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. (coughs)
0: He attended the computer school in Manhattan, graduated the Calhoun School on Manhattan's Upper West Side in 1997 after securing a scholarship to attend the private school, and went on to Sarah Lawrence College, where he majored in puppetry. After two years there, Peel dropped out to form a comedy duo with Sarah Lawrence classmate and future Key and Peel writer Rebecca Drysdale. Peel had been a cinephile ever since he was a young child and decided at 12 that he wanted to be a film director, citing Glory, Edward Scissorhands, Thelma and Louise, and Aliens as films that had a strong effect on him. He's best known for his film and television work in the comedy and horror genres. Peel started his career in sketch comedy before transitioning to his current roles as a writer and director of psychological horror and satirical films. In 2017, Peel was included on the annual Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world. Peel's breakout role came in 2003 when he was hired as a cast member of the Fox sketch comedy series Mad TV, where he spent five seasons, leaving the show in 2008. He founded the film and television production company Monkey Paw Productions in 2012, and in the following years, he and his frequent Mad TV collaborator Keegan-Michael Key created and starred in their own Comedy Central sketch comedy series, Key and Peele, which ran from 2012
1: to 2015. You,
0: the series was critically acclaimed, winning two primetime Emmy Awards and a Peabody Award. The two wrote, produced, and starred in the comedy film Keanu in 2016 and appeared in various projects since. During that time, Peel began dating actress and comedian Chelsea Peretti from Brooklyn Nine-Nine in 2013. They became engaged in November of 2015 and Peretti announced in April of the following year that she and Peel had eloped. They have a son named Beaumont who was born July 1st of 2017. Speaking of 2017, Peel was so insulted when Sony offered him the role of Poop in the Emoji Movie that he was inspired to retire from acting and focus entirely on being a screenwriter and film director. By the way, the role of the Poop Emoji went to Sir Patrick Stewart, further proving that principle is subjective. His directorial debut, the horror film Get Out, was a critical and box office success for which he received numerous accolades, including the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, along with nominations for Best Picture and Best Director. Critics have frequently named Get Out as one of the best films of the 21st century. In February 2017, Peele curated the Brooklyn Academy of Music film series The Art of the Social Thriller, comprising 12 films that inspired the making of Get Out, including the horror films Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, The Shining, Candyman, The People Under the Stairs, Scream, The Silence of the Lambs, Funny Games, Misery, and thrillers Rear Window and The Burbs, and the comedy drama Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. As a filmmaker, Peele has cited his influences as being Steven Spielberg, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and M. Night Shyamalan. As a comedian, Peele counts among his influences there in Living Color, Richard Pryor, and Dave Chappelle. He also has listed Steve Martin and Martin Lawrence as arguably his two biggest influences. Now that would be a Martin and Martin show to see. All we got was Steve Martin and Martin Short. But, you know, good nonetheless. Peel has also a voice acted in the animated film Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, and in the adult animated sitcom Big Mouth as the ghost of Duke Ellington. He co-created the TBS comedy series The Last OG and the YouTube premium comedy series Weird City. He's also served as the host and producer of the CBS All Access revival of the anthology series The Twilight Zone. And for more on that amazing reboot series, check out episode 44 of Science Factual on the original Twilight Zone and reboot series with guest comedian Elijah Mang. Regarding what's coming up next for the prolific artisan, he's been cited as saying, I don't know what's next. There are a few ideas percolating. I need to kind of sink into the world a bit and allow the world to sort of tell me which one is the next one. So that's what my next couple of months will be spent doing. Sitting, watching, waiting, looking at my coffee. If you watch good films, you'll get inspired. Even if it has nothing to do with anything you want to do. Sometimes the inspiration comes instantly and sometimes it comes in a long time. I do need to do some watching and listening. Can't just be always expressing yourself. You gotta listen. Ultimately, Peele is waiting for further inspiration to strike. However, as he waits, he certainly isn't lying dormant, as he has two upcoming films he produced. While these are bound to be strong films, though, it isn't surprising that fans are itching for more of his original directorial work as well. The release of Nope, which expanded Peele's horizons by delving into the science fiction genre and featuring a non-human threat, is only increasing the intrigue that he holds. Still, Get Out, Us, and Nope were released roughly within two to three years of each other. I, for one, can't wait to see what the future holds for one of the most talented people of our generation. Alrighty, I'm pretty sure this ominous cloud has been following me around all morning, so let's get on with the inter- Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Now, since Julian and I are going to talk primarily about Nope, let's get into some facts behind that movie in particular. Nope is a 2022 American neo-Western science fiction horror film written, directed, and produced by Jordan Peele, of course, under his and Ian Cooper's Monkey Paw Productions banner. It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer as horse-wrangling siblings attempting to capture evidence of an unidentified flying object. The film also stars Stephen Wynn as Ricky Jupe Park, a former child actor and owner-creator of the theme park Jupiter's Claim. Jacob Kim as young Ricky Jupe Park, who plays Mickey Houston on Gordy's Home, which we'll get to in a bit. Michael Wincott as Antlers-Holst, a renowned cinematographer. And Brandon Perea as Angel Torres, a tech salesman at Fry's Electronics, RIP. Early on during the marketing campaign for NOPE, fans were curious about the title, with some believing that it stood for an acronym, NOT OF PLANET EARTH. Kaluya himself had asked Peel about the inspiration for the title, and the director simply responded that it was so called for the terrifying scenes in the movie that would have black audiences collectively stating Nope. It's encouraging to know that Peel came up with a title that both has a certain connotation and yet many interpretations. Peel was partly inspired to write Nope by the COVID 19 lockdowns and the quote, endless cycle of grim, inescapable tragedy in 2020, and the film has been characterized as containing themes relating to spectacle and exploitation. GQ's Garrick D. Kennedy wrote that Nope is a movie about spectacle, more specifically, our addiction to spectacle. It's about holding a mirror up to all of us and our inability to look away from drama or peril. Kennedy also states that the erasure of black contributions to the history of filmmaking plays a significant role in the film. Plate 626 from Edward Muybridge's Animal Locomotion was the very first assembly of photographs used to create a motion picture. The movie only takes liberties with the man's identity, which is no longer known caltech professor john o dabiri collaborated with peel and his team on the design of the gene jacket creature's ufo form and in particular its final true biblical angel form which was inspired by those of neon genesis evangelion and sea creatures such as jellyfish octopuses and squid to imagine a hypothetical undiscovered previously extinct sky predator realistically imagining how could something like this hide in the clouds with its ability to generate electric field taken from electric eels and ghost knife fish, allowing for electric propulsion, i.e. Jean Jacket's fast-flying without the wings or sails. Guillaume Rocheron of Moving Picture Company also worked with DeBiri and Peel on the visual effects shots featuring Jean Jacket utilizing both CGI and practical effects, the latter particularly involving the use of a helicopter to swirl the dust and dirt on the ground the way the creature does when consuming its victims in the film. The film even held its first test screenings just 12 weeks before its July 22nd release, with the special effects still being worked on. The film's score was composed by Michael Abels, who had previously worked with Peele on Get Out in 2017 and Us in 2019. Abels described his score as having to meet the threat level described by Peele in the script and the ideas imposed by the film's quote, "'What's a bad miracle?' He added, "'The music needs to have both those senses together.' Both a little bit of a sense of awe, like we would have looking at the Grand Canyon, but then also the urge to run away from the Grand Canyon because falling in would not be good. That's the dichotomy that's present in the film. You hear a sense of a little bit of awe and magic, and then there's sheer terror. But then there's also a sense of a real epic adventure towards the end and giant music that accompanies a giant historic adventure. Speaking of adventure, the scene where the movie takes place, Agua Dulce, is real, located in Los Angeles County. It's considered a census-designated place and has a population of about 3,500. While it's common for movies and TV shows not to be shot where they actually take place, NOPE was filmed in the Agua Dulce Desert. The Jupiter's Claim theme park was built right there on location. Agua Dulce is also home to the Sweetwater Movie Land Ranch and the Agua Dulce Movie Ranch, where such movie classics as The Man from Earth, Night of the Templar, Overrun, Snowbird, Sam Was Here Too... Rage, and Three Nights in the Desert were filmed. Classics all. Another thing movies and TV shows do a lot of is feature fake brands as opposed to real ones. As many Californians will likely know, Fry's Electronics, where O.J. and Emerald meet Angel, however, actually was a real company with multiple locations throughout the state. It closed down in early 2021, and since filming didn't start until that summer, it's unclear whether any of the locations were actually used during filming. The Burbank location did feature a sci-fi theme complete with a crashed flying saucer sticking out of the storefront, just like the one in the movie. Okay, you know we had to get to this part. Let's talk about Gordy's Home, the 90s sitcom referenced in Ricky Jupe Park's subplot which, although it never existed, that didn't stop Peel from making his own introduction to this series that perfectly captures similar shows of the time. What with the smiling family and Gordy's lovable antics, the intro perfectly captures the magical feel-good moments of 90s sitcoms and makes it difficult to imagine the carnage the chimpanzee is capable of during the show's birthday episode when a popped balloon suddenly sends him into a crazed frenzy. Back in 2014, Peel tweeted that he dreamed about witnessing a chimp attack and, as the New York Post pointed out, it sounds an awful lot like what happened to Stephen Wynn's character, Jupe, in the film. If Gordy's rampage on the set of Gordy's Home seemed familiar, it's because something very similar happened in 2009, when a chimp named Travis attacked a woman and left her severely disfigured. Travis had been taken from his mother when he was a baby and sold to Sandra and Jerome Harold, a couple in Connecticut who raised him to wear clothes and eat meals at the dining table with them. Like the fictional Gordy, Travis appeared in TV shows and commercials. In February of 2009, Travis mauled Charla Nash, a friend of Sandra Harold's. Police, after responding to a 911 call from Harold, which is harrowing as fuck and highly recommended to anyone looking to get their blood pumping, uh, shot and ultimately killed Travis, who was still enraged and attempted to enter a police vehicle when they arrived. Nash survived and over the next three days spent over seven hours in surgery to treat the injuries to her face and hands. We also can't talk about this subplot without getting into the impossible shoe scene. Of course, the significance of the prop remains open to interpretation by viewers, though Peele has explained that it symbolizes a human response to trauma, whereby victims tend to detach themselves from the horrifying event at hand. He's quoted as saying, The shoe represents a moment where we check out of a trauma. Jupe zones in on this little shoe, that's Mary Jo's shoe, that has landed in a precarious, odd situation, and this is the moment where he dissociates. Peel also explained that it ties into the idea of bad miracles or seemingly impossible horrific events which play a theme in Nope, explaining, quote, In one way, it's the impossible shot, it's the impossible moment, a theme that is revisited by the story arc involving cinematographer Antlers-Holst. On a lighter note, it turns out we might not have seen the last of Jean Jacket's kind, because if actor Brandon Perea gets his wish, Nope will get a sequel. During an interview with Sci-Fi, he said he doesn't think the story is over. Quote, For how heroic everything kind of seemed at the end, I'm like, there's no way they leave the heroes like this. This is just the start of something new, and that's why I really wanted to survive because I knew that Jordan was about to do some craziness and craft some new worlds. I want to be a part of it as long as I can, so hopefully we get to do it again. Okay, well, that's enough out of me. How's about that interview with guest comedian Julian Gray, that may or may not be from Out of This World? <laughs> We're here at Growler's Taproom on 82nd in Southeast Portland. And I'm usually here for one of two reasons. Star Trek Trivia Night on Thursdays, in which I fuck. (laughs) And then secondly is for the open mics. Yeah, and, and tap that showcase, which you just did, Julian. I did. Yeah, you did. How was it? It was. I mean, first off, your set was awesome. It's a great crowd. Right.
1: Yeah. Tap that is a. It's a fun spot. It's a safe spot. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think comedy thrives in this intimate form of. Growlers only holds maybe twenty people, twenty five comfortably. Sure. For being generous, yeah. Maybe a little spillover into the patio. Yeah. So it feels a little bit more intimate, more of an experience for the audience, and it's fun, kind of maybe testing new material or interacting with the crowd a little bit more. Sure. Instead of just going into robotic, like, here's my hit after hit after Mm -hmm. hit. It's kind of like, feel the crowd out, have a good time with them, and make sure, like, everyone's enjoying this almost, like, living room talent show.
0: Yeah, the first couple of bits are always a vibe check, but, like, yeah, with, with growlers it is that intimate level like you are basically on top of the crowd there is no separation like at a place like helium or even Funhouse. yeah i i love this place so much like not only for the nerd scene but the portland comedy community as well there's a lot of great stuff that goes on here shout out to the joes yeah shout out to the joes shout out to scott ii and daniel porter and also michael marcus has been like posting all of this yeah he's hosting the Tab that showcase like a beast it's definitely a staple in, in the scene. Uh,
1: especially, it's hard when it's cold because everyone's mm-hmm. just like, "I'm kind of got to do my set and get somewhere warm." But in the yeah. summer, where everyone's just kicking it and vibing, it's it's. I different. can't wait! Oh, I can't
0: wait! Portland summers are, the, are some of the best, man. We we got to get a float going, it. <laughs> and there wasn't there talk of a bowling league too? Oh yeah, call me the Big Lebowski dude. I'll hey. abide by that for sure. I'm also abide by that. Yeah, well. Um, do the, the person who I'm abiding with, this is Julian Gray, folks. Hey, man. Hey, how are you? Yeah, dude. Thanks for coming on the pod. Uh, um, it's been a pleasure. I I just like that we are
1: both abiding. Right yes. Now. Yeah, I should yeah. I would only join that Portland Bowling League if I got a bowling
0: shirt. Yeah. And I'm going to force the issue that we all get bullied. Yeah, I think that Jane Malone could definitely, you know, pop out some pretty crucial, you know, designs. I'm sure that we have some screen printers in the community. So I'm, I, I know we're going to figure it out. I know that I have to do my annual Big Lebowski <laughs> pilgrimage. But my wife hates to watch it with me because I ruin literally every scene. Like, I'm, I'm, like, you know, saying the scene as it's or or before it's happening. It does get annoying, that's for sure. There's something special about cult classics, like oh, Nicola Baskin. Yeah. yeah, man. Well, I'm happy to be abiding with you. So, what is your Instagram, Julian, before we get too far into...
1: Yeah, my things? Instagram is Julian the Grey. So, instead of Gandalf, mm-hmm.
0: put Julian there. Julian the Grey. Love it. Yeah. I recently watched the Peter Jackson rendition of Lord of the Rings. Are those the long? Those, yeah, the movies. You're right, yeah, right. This isn't a fantasy podcast, so I'm going to table any opinions <laughs> that I have on it, uh, especially because I hope to have uh, fellow nerd Robert Gresham on to talk about <laughs> the 1920s sci-fi, and he is a huge fantasy nerd as well. Dude, did you know that he's written, he's he's published like 50 D&D books? Really? Yeah. That's really impressive. Yeah, it, yes, it is. Not like, by itself. But, like, yeah, dude, shout out Robert Gresham. If you're a nerd, fucking, you know, and you need some D&D to chow down on. Gresham's the guy. Gresham's the guy, man. So, Julian, how did you get your start in stand-up comedy? I started after the pandemic, so I'll, I'll be coming up on
1: a year in April of no. 2023. Cool. I've just always enjoyed the mental chess game that it is to say we have something that we think is funny or Mm -hmm. saw something that's funny. Mm -hmm. How do I portray that message to the crowd to be on my side and also see it as funny or thought provoking. And it's just a fun way to meet new people and hear different experiences and perspectives. And then you meet individuals who are very tied into music or film or art. And you start learning all about all these different areas that make up kind of the medium to connect mm-hmm. all of those things
0: yeah definitely we we see a lot of intersectionality with like the arts in stand-up for sure because there are a lot of talented people in portland and you know what's more is like you know you're, you're talking about how do you turn a you should have been there moment you know like funny if you were there to something that's relatable to the audience yeah that's that is certainly a chess game
1: <laughs> right it's those little we know it's just the rep after rep after rep jump yep. get there is the most rewarding part like, there's no such thing as a perfect joke in my book, but like once you get to the final one, there's little tweaks, but it's like those little tweaks before the big tweaks to reveal the joke to pull it together I mean, is really the rewarding process of like maybe you at at Growlers and you got a, a joke there. You're like, oh, this might add into a bit I worked on four months ago.
0: Yeah, I thought my Jewish penis bit was pretty solid, and I just recently, like, developed new components to it. Like, it doesn't fuck on the Sabbath. <laughs> well, at least it doesn't get hard. Well, maybe it'll get hard, but it won't come. You know what I mean? Like, you just want to. I have to say, one of the first mics
1: I went to was in uh, maybe Lake Oswego at... Um, the uh, uh, Garages. The Garages, yeah. and you were one of the first sets I saw, and <laughs> you nice. did... That joke, and then maybe the DJ joke. Oh, yeah, yeah, the nineteen forties <laughs> yeah. DJ, not Germany. Yeah, they're clever jokes. Thank you. Like, it's, a, it's hard being up here. Like, a lot of the audience wants to be like, you can't say that, you can't do that. But if you take a step back and you look at the way that was presented, like, if he became, you know, his interest, you're like, that is a clever take on
0: kind of modern, on how it would look modernly. Thank you, Julian, yeah. I also qualify the fact that I'm Jewish typically after I do all my Hitler <laughs> material, because I love to like watch the audience slowly peel back. And they're like, we don't think we should laugh at this. Stuff. All right. Yeah, no, it's it's always fun for me. <laughs> I don't know how fun it is for them. Um, but so long as we're having fun, I guess, you know, that's, that's a, certainly a, an important component. So what's your first exposure to science fiction then? My first exposure to
1: science fiction was probably around Twilight Zone. Well, My mom used to watch the original one. Okay. Um, and I don't necessarily know if I understood what science fiction was or what was going on, but I think the mechanisms in which science fiction is used and the concepts that are brought in. And as a kid, you're like, well, wow, this is really creative and fun and a little scary. Mm. Um, and as you grow older, you look back on those and you go, Oh, wow. That, I see kind of the absurd reality of that or like the the fictional side that is tied to the truth a little bit, which sure. I think makes modern day science fiction really
0: fun is seeing like there is a little bit of truth in there. Yeah. Like Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. Or, or in the, the Twilight Zone reboot. And not to say the original wasn't didn't have like a lot of metaphors and allegories, but like the newer Jordan Peele version, which is the reason why we're talking, right? We are. Thank you for bringing Jordan Peele as an individual to right. the table, because like you know, it, this is the first time that I've covered a director outright, right? And we'll, we'll get into Jordan Peele's background too, but because he I, I grew up with him on in Mad TV. Oh
1: yeah, I caught I caught the end of, of Mad TV, and I think nice. if you look at Peele as a director, and we'll touch on it as for someone as you know identifies as African American, like seeing some of our perspectives put into science fiction,s or thriller, or horror makes it so much more honest and people relate to it the same way like if you know you had a jewish director going into that sector very hard from a modern perspective or you'd really be like okay i get it this feels authentic as opposed to like old hollywood in some regards saying like this is what we think they're thinking and we're putting it on screen
0: yeah th- that's that's totally true and i i love to see it through the literal opposite lens you know like, so it's it's definitely nice to see i would love to see like a hardcore horror thriller jewish director like hey, did you see um oh man what was it with steve carell the patient on hulu i did not that's an excellent one a, a, a story that has a jewish you know overarching theme behind it the, he's a I don't want to get too far into it, but it it is like a it's a great psychological thriller as well. You know, speaking of like Jordan Peele esque vibe, yeah. Uh, but he uh, has has such a career arc, you yeah. Because like you know, he, uh, yeah, he Keegan Michael Key is also from uh, Mad T- from Mad TV, yeah. So it it was cool to <laughs> Chappelle likes to say like to watch them do his show, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think that's which I don't agree with. I don't agree with at all.
1: I wasn't at camp for a little bit. I was raised on Chappelle. But as I got older, I started to understand they're taking it a, a very different way yeah. in some regards and yeah. having a little bit more playful fun. Yeah, uh, they're still great sh- shows. I don't think Keen and Peel would be the same without the Chappelle show. The last season was a bit more serious. When, yeah when Peel was starting to lean into I think a little bit more of the director and yeah, like you was like true detective kind of theme like they're just in
0: the car I love the car framing device too it was so good yeah yeah and the two of them together they're such friends I love it yeah, yeah they're they're great a Jordan Peel's directorial debut was get out right and then us and then nope right yeah I want to talk largely about nope because yeah. that is his otherwise he yeah they're they're horror thrillers. But god damn, he does such a good job. And I think he did a phenomenal job with Twilight Zone.
1: Yeah, I caught a couple episodes of that. And you I gotta watch the whole thing. I just need to get I think it's on CBS. Paramount Plus. Paramount. I'll share I'll share it with you. Couple. Don't listen Paramount Plus. So I'm sharing passwords. Stephen Yoon. Mm-hmm. And then the one with Dan Carlin where they're on the plane and then the podcast is narrating. Yes. That was really also shout out Dan Carlin Hardcore History. Yeah, love it. I think he's like he's like our generation's Ken Burns. Knowing podcast background, it's crazy. And I think when you look at Peel's just arc overall, it's one of the things I think a lot of people enjoy is. They found them through Mad TV. They found him through Key and Peele or Keanu, the cat movie. Oh, yeah. And there's <laughs> moments in Get Out. There's moments in Us. There's moments in Nope where you can see Jordan Peele's comedic sense going into the characters, mm. which I think makes for science fiction or thriller. It makes it a little bit more realistic where, like, there's going to be comedic moments that happen in tense situations. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you cut those out of those
0: that genre and it just falls flat. Well, and it also shows, like, it shows Daniel Kaluuya's uh, range yeah. as well as an actor. Because it, it also, also, speaking of Black Mirror, he was in, like, the second episode of Black Mirror, too. I also have to remind myself that he was in Black Panther. Yep. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, he's just, like, like it's, it's so crazy, like, his range. But speaking to that comedic, you know, writing, just the way that he delivers the word nope. <laughs> and so often, like, the title of a movie will be said in... The context, there goes A.J. Valentine running for the mic. Local legend. Dude, moving to Austin. Yeah. Yeah, Watch out, Austin. You should get an A.J. Valentine, you fucks. (laughs) I
1: think the way Kaluuya does, I think the way that they work together so well from Get Out to Nope, where Kaluuya's character has very, very little dialogue, Mm. but it's delivered in just the right context. He's so expressive, too. Yeah, in the face to give the scene that oomph that you're looking for or maybe and nope you look at a sci-fi a little bit more of that curiosity of like when he gets asked like what is a bad miracle like that line in itself he's like what what do you call a, a bad miracle where you can see him trying to think and figure it out but the curiosity just fills the scene for the audience and you know the members in the movie
0: absolutely the characters in that movie were also so great like steve wen's um uh, little juke and that dude that background story <laughs> holy fucking shit that should be that should be something in its own what's
1: with the shoe so i interpreted that as a bad miracle yeah like a shoe doesn't necessarily spoiler alert but the shoe doesn't necessarily. No, they've had one the audience has been spoiled by yeah sure. it doesn't necessarily stand up on its own in public but like that's the one thing you catch on when something vicious has happened, mm. and that's the bad miracles. Like throughout the movie, I think that's what Peele does really well. And a lot of the context is like he informs the the viewer
0: enough, but allows the viewer to make their own decisions. Yes, and it, it's interesting, like just the subtle psychological developments that Peele will put into the story development, like the obvious immense trauma that Steve Wynn's character went under as a child. Yet he holds that so close to him and caricaturizes it as a memento room right. that he charges people to like go into or whatever. And then
1: the twist is he's also profiting off of that trauma a little bit and right. understanding, like, this chimp was the center of attention. And now Jean Jacket is the
0: center of attention that I can profit from. And it's not going to happen twice to me. Right. Oh, yeah. He's trying to get one over on, right. on his previous trauma. Interesting. Why Jean Jacket? I, th- I know they're like it's like naming a horse or an animal or whatever because he's trying to break it, right? Like, or not necessarily break it, but I think you're right in terms of breaking. I think
1: it's um, Kiki Palmer's character <laughs> never could break horses the way Daniel Kaluuya's character could, and so the one that got away from her was Jean Jacket, who ends up going to the Scorpion King, and so in the end, is her character breaking Jean Jacket? Uh, and that's her ride and,
0: like, her arc of getting that alien yeah. uh, entity broken in. That, it was so sad about the the dad, Keith David's character. What an opening. Yeah, because you're like, what is happening? Yeah. You hear the screams of other people that it's picked up or what have you, like probably like a group of hikers or something. Yeah, you know I, yeah it's, it's just so, like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, I think that's a thing, too. It starts right
1: away where you're, you think like, what just happened? Yeah. And also those voices, you don't understand they are other people until later in the movie. You're like, yeah. what is that sound? Is it, I mean, it is, it is sci-fi, but it's also Peel's version of like a creature feature. Yeah. It's kind of like, I like to call it the Black Jaws in a little bit. <laughs> okay. Where you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah like, what is it going to look like? What is it going to be? And then you find out, then you find out it just gets kind of darker and
0: darker. It does. Speaking of the movie in general, Why don't we jump into this synopsis? Let's write it down. Let's write it down. In present day Agua Dulce, California, the Haywood family trains and handles horses for film and television productions, which to be honest looks like a pretty fun job.
1: Yeah, and I think historically Peel talks about black cowboys being kind of sanitized from Western film. Yeah. And so one of the the horse ranches in Hollywood is black owned, which I thought was really
0: really fun. Yeah, the history film behind it, like the you know, the few frames, the first few frames that were captured as a motion picture was of a, a black jockey riding a horse. Right. Which is interesting. One day, metallic objects begin to fall out of the sky, and Otis Haywood Sr. is hit in the eye by a falling nickel and dies at the hospital, which they presume fell out of an airplane. Although, there was no reported said airplane, so it's just kind of like one of those, we don't know what's happening, so we're just going to come up with an idea. Hopefully the public buys that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and it, <laughs>
0: and it gets him in, in the eye
1: pretty good. And it reminded me, when well, the first time I watched it, maybe it's Planet of the Apes that has okay. the scar over his eye
0: there's oh yeah i think that's the two yeah his children otis oj haywood jr and emerald m haywood inherit the ranch as a result six months after the incident og and m are fired from the set of a tv commercial after their horse named lucky reacts violently to its own reflection on a handheld mirror which he gave a lot of i mean you know he was like don't you don't look, look at gift horse in the mouth I, what does that mean I I don't I, I don't also said her on know. Gift horse and the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is all that
1: line too is also a little bit of foreshadowing for the movie where the horse reacts violently to seeing itself or like the flash. E. How do you mean? So in the end of the movie, the way she captures the attention of Jean Jacket uh, is through the old pretty- school stop motion flash
0: picture yeah um which is just a fun tidbit which we're gonna get into this fucking director in a minute but (laughs) okay in order to keep the business afloat oj sells some of the horses to ricky jupe park who who operates a nearby western theme park named jupiter's claim at the park jupe also exploits his past as a child actor specifically when a chimpanzee animal actor named gordy maimed the rest of his cast members but left jupe unharmed I don't want to say that because, yeah, they had the fist bump thing going on. Physically unharmed. Physically unharmed. But good point. But also he got fucking shot in the head, like as he was basically turning his attention on him. Right. And man, real life chimp attacks are no fucking joke. Yeah. They are 10 times stronger than like me. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the thing, too. But I break stuff accidentally. I think that scene was so, like, unsettling Ooh. because it hits the nerve where you're like, that's true. Yeah, that for that legit happens. <laughs> One night after discussing their father's legacy and impact on the film industry, the Haywoods notice their electricity fluctuating and their horses vanishing and violently reacting to an unknown presence. They discover a UFO, an unidentified flying object, which now is really, they call it UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Yeah. Which I mean I guess that does incorporate more. It's more right. more inclusive. It's a very Portland term. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think for a while the far
1: conspiracy theorists really took UFO and marketed it well, and the government was like, Yeah, we messed that one up.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they missed us, so they had to do their whole their own <laughs> UAP thing. Anyway, so they discover a UFO shaped like a flying saucer that has been taking their horses and then spitting out the organic matter, which OJ concludes to have caused their father's death. He'd be correct. Motivated by a desire to save the ranch and the wealth and fame that comes with it, the siblings decide to document evidence of a UFO's existence and recruit Fry's electronic employee, Angel Torres, to set up their surveillance cameras. They don't so much as recruit him as he <laughs> inserts himself into the situation. Recipes, Fry's Electronic. Oh, there. man. Seriously, I have my—the last rig that I built was from a Fry's out in Wilsonville. Yeah, so, yeah, I used to live right by that one. Sick. <laughs> yeah.
1: Giant. Nice. But I also like that that one that fries has the UFO,
0: yeah, going into the side. Yes, head. it does. Yeah. Also the the jacket that uh, that Jupe is wearing. Sick. Yeah, I mean, that's a fit. The UFO arrives the second time it abducts a horse named Clover as well as a decoy snatched by M from Jupiter's claim. The day after M attempts to recruit famed cinematographer Antlers Holst to help, what a name, uh, to help them record footage of the UFO, this fucking guy. Uh, It's going to get to it in a second, but this fucking guy. Holst declines at first, telling M that chasing the wealth and fame is a dream you will never wake up from. Angel, which is good advice. More money, more problems, for sure. Uh, Angel then arrives and reveals to the Haywoods that a cloud captured on camera never moves, which O.J. suspects is the UFO's hiding place. O.J. theorizes that based on the UFO's irregular flight patterns and movements, that it is not a ship at all, but rather something else. Very clever device in the movie. Mm.
1: I think historically we've seen in sci-fi, a lot of it is the typical UFO. It doesn't necessarily blend in. It just kind of sticks out or you see a
0: light go through a cloud rather than this being the oh, cloud yeah yeah is this the cloud is everything uploading to so that it? that would that <laughs> that would make sense Jupin introduces a live show in jupiter's claim and plans to use lucky as bait to lure out the ufo which he has been feeding the haywood's horses to for months <laughs> in front of an audience to help reclaim his fame but i think that you were right to say that he's doing this a little bit to reclaim like ownership of a lost innocence or a childhood. like yeah I, I think that's an excellent uh, analysis the UFO arrives early and sucks up Joop and the entire audience. At this point, OJ confirms that the UFO is in fact not a spaceship, <laughs> but a highly territorial predatory animal. Well, this right. is a, right. what a what a twist! The one part I have to talk about is going back to Gordy and that scene. Yeah, Gordy
1: rips apart the cast. The his sister in the cast survives. Right. and has like her face ripped apart. Like the reference to the I think it's a reference to an old Oprah
0: guest who was, actually was attacked by her gym yes her she was with her friend and the friend was feeding the monkey it was an older monkey he was in his teens was giving it xanax and wine mm. and wouldn't give it the xanax so that and was paying more attention to the friend so he it rips the friend's hands and face off yeah yeah absolutely terrifying and then they shoot it
1: yeah and then so in this film she survives uh
0: and then she brings her to the show at I know, and then, wow. Not that it's his fault the first time, the, the monkey is never,
1: Yeah, or, but the second time, he was like, he knows what's happening. He's like, yeah. hey, you know what? You can come to the show. I'm going to give you a special shout-out. Like,
0: yeah. thanks for coming out, and then... Oof. It's so brutal. When, when the wind is flapping, you're like, yeah, that's what people who have their faces ripped off look like. And that um scene, the digestive scene, mm. is... Is brutal. The sound design is amazing. It is, and you know, like it's like, okay, how is it going to process all these things? And then all of a sudden, it just sends out that pulse, and everything's quiet. So gnarly. It's just it, it show, goes to show that like we are humans are resilient, but we are relatively delicate on a cosmic scale. Yeah, we have no like protective anything. Okay, after the animal attacks the Haywood household by marking its territory with the regurgitated remains of its prey, which is a fucking gnarly scene. O.J. discovers that it does not attack anyone who does not look at it, similar to the horse's reaction to its own reflection. Good point. This is a, the other thing, too, I like
1: there. The little thing is when O.J. realizes that and they test it out, mm. it's O.J. I don't know a lot about horses, but OJ's riding away on what I would assume is a white bronco.
0: Sure. Uh, which uh, I thought yeah. was like a, a clever, a clever peel. He's like, this might be fun. Hey, I like it. Using this method, the Haywoods and Angel escape the house unharmed, which is such a harrowing scene. O.J., determined to capture footage of the animal, devises a plan to record it without having to observe it. M and Angel are hesitant until the former receives a call from Holst, who now agrees to help M after seeing news about the Jupiter's claim incident on TV. O.J. names the organism Gene Jacket after a horse that M was promised to train, but was unable to because it was given to the Scorpion gang, right? Yeah, The Rock. The Rock. <laughs> Dwayne The Rock, the Tooth Fairy Johnson. <laughs> uh, to circumvent Gene Jacket's effects on electronics, Whole springs a hand-cranked IMAX film camera to capture footage. Who's smart? I mean, he, in the film, he is a highly rewar- or accredited
1: director. Yes. And I think it's a fun part, too, to mention here. I think for this movie, you'll have to fact-check me, that they used a certain piece of technology at actually filming the movie to film at night. Huh, so they filmed the movie actually at night and to get enough light in for it to work. So it's like a, I think it's a revolutionary piece of tech for film. Wow.
0: So um, I'll have to look it. into that further because that's always very fascinating to me. Yeah, film is such an interesting thing. With Angel, the group devised a plan to bait out Gene Jacket with a field of electrically powered two-man props that help them deduce its location in the sky, which is, again, very smart. However, a TMZ paparazzi trespasses onto the field and is thrown from his electric motorcycle when it shuts down near Gene Jacket. He's devoured by Gene Jacket while begging OJ to film the event, which is, is such a great commentary on, like, the TMZ, like... Lens, You know what I mean? I think, too, a couple of things I think of as family guy, wacky, wavable, inflatable tube. Yes.
1: Wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-flailing tube man. Wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-flailing tube man. Wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-flailing tube man. Hi, I'm Al Harrington, president and CEO of Al Harrington's Wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-flailing tube man emporium and warehouse. Thanks to a shipping error, I am now currently overstocked on wacky, waving, inflatable, arm-flailing tube men, and I am passing the savings on to you attract customers to your business make a splash at your next presentation keep grandma company protect your crops confuse your neighbors african-american hail a cab testify in church or just raise the roof whatever your wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man needs are so come on down to al harrington's wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man emporium and warehouse route two in wikipog yeah which was fun and then i think the other thing is that tmz guy in the credits i believe is named the same last name as the famous horse jockey that was filmed for that stop motion oh.
0: sequence like the that created movies i guess but. you're giving me a lot of homework in that <laughs> this is a there's a lot of good stuff to have to look into because appeal is de- he has a lot of deep cuts yeah a lot of deep cuts though holst captures footage of jean jacket his obsession with the impossible shot results in him being devoured alongside his camera forcing the remaining three to flee what is his thought here What what does he think is going to happen? Like, he's still filming on the way up, right? Right. And it's like, yeah, great footage. It's awesome, right? But no one's ever going to see it because if it falls from the sky and then, like, that film's exposed to the light, it's going to be overexposed and it's done. I think that's a good point to bring up, too, is
1: throughout the film you get exposed to holes, looking at all of these predatory animal film clips where he's looking for the impossible shot. Yeah, And I think at a certain point he realizes like this is my shot this is my chance i'll give everything for it um I'll, mm. I'll succumb to it and then peel does a great job to your point of he goes up into jean jacket but there's enough left for the viewer to think like is the film okay did it get exposed is someone going to find it like he leaves
0: that up to the audience to make that decision yeah because what they only really capture, because he's rolling all that time when they're anticipating. Then when it's, what, maybe 20 frames as he's tracking up and then catches the edge of the blind. I mean, yeah, so that's not good enough. There's It's not good enough. And even just that one still image that M gets is going to be hotly contended. But the only thing it has going for it is that you can't modify like that steel plate press right. like, image. So that's a, I think
1: that's a good thing, too. We touched about it a little bit is like, there is a little bit of that stigma around the supernatural, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, whatever, that the image just isn't what you want. And they do that well in the film where you're like, oh, they have digital 4K, 8K cameras. And they're like, nope, nope, doesn't work. Yeah. Here's the IMAX hand crank film that we
0: might get one shaky image of. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of that scene, Angel survives an attack from Jean Jacket by being wrapped in a tarp and barbed wire. Holy fuck causing the creature to unfurl from its saucer shape into a jellyfish-like form which is dope. Yeah. It is sick. It's like one of the coolest monster forms cuz it's not menacing, it's more it has that like like an anglerfish where it yeah, like it has that like mesmerizing ribbon mouth to bring in its mate or right yeah yeah to just mesmerize whatever it is that its prey is that's a good point and i think again to like the creature feature
1: it does adds another layer you know builds on jaws and other creature features where it's like we saw g jack and we're like oh that's what it is yeah and then it changes and you're like what is (laughs)
0: happening yeah yeah exactly all right, bringing it home, O.J. intentionally looks directly at Jean Jacket, seemingly sacrificing himself and allowing M. to use the motorcycle to rush to Jupiter's claim. There she untethers the park's large helium balloon mascot of Jupe. Getting one last one in at least. <laughs> uh, Jean Jacket attempts to feed on the balloon while M. uses an attraction's analog camera to photograph Jean Jacket before the balloon pops. With the picture as proof of the creature's existence and reporters arriving nearby, M. sees an unharmed O.J. and Lucky... Standing outside of Jupiter's claim, hella Western with the smoke clearing and shit. Like, that. it's a great scene.
1: And yeah, it's a it's a good homage to Western. I think it also does an homage to that beginning point we talked about, like over the first stop motion yes. film of the Black Jockey of like no one really knows who it is and no one really knows
0: who OJ is or how what he did to to do that. They just let it ride. He, for all intents and purposes, saved a lot of people. Yeah, and no, well, like not that that thing would have destroyed the city, you know, because it has you know faults to it but like right maybe life like yeah. life forms. yeah overall great movie um you know i, I like the jean jacket almost looks a little bit like the underside of a cowboy hat oh yeah that's a good point i don't know if that was intentional or not like or if it adopts that but i love the the concept of things that we don't know of that still exist like there was a fish that was thought to be extinct for millions of years but we caught one in like 2007 yeah, like shit like that. Uh, like there's stuff that could be living up in the sky that only lives in our atmosphere. How the fuck do we know? We can't see that far. Yeah, I'm terrified of the ocean,
1: uh, Oh, dude. Like deep sea ocean. I don't think, I think Oof. everyone should be scared of it. Should be, yes. Like, uh, the si- like understanding the size of whales. But when you think about like you're talking about some of those things in the ocean, like I remember that tsunami. Oh, there's a bunch of stuff way down there yeah. that we never thought about or like the giant mega squids and stuff. Yeah i think it was
0: the, i think the word you're talking about the thailand one yeah yeah that would that happened on my birthday oh really <laughs> yeah <laughs> interesting <laughs> yeah. one interesting birthday thing yeah yeah exactly day after christmas <laughs> uh so let's get down to the real meat and potatoes of why we're here julian did you bring your tinfoil hat like i asked you to always got it perfect do you believe in aliens I'm gonna clarify i thing. it's a yeah. tinfoil do-rag uh perfect yep gotta keep the waves intact yeah 100 believe in aliens not maybe in the realm of Like, they're visiting us in in saucers kind of showed? Yeah. Potentially, but not, like, in mass where they're, like, on the other side of the moon. Yeah, but
1: the way I look at it is, like, (laughs) all the stars we see are are assigned to a different group of planets. And maybe on those planets, what we're calling aliens, like, maybe there's a planet just of Octoclus or just of... Uh, ants or something like sure. that where like i'm sure there's intelligent i believe in intelligent life forms out there yeah uh, the
0: likelihood that there isn't is to believe in that is is to be ignorant willfully I think. yeah and you could you could convince me that octopus are aliens there there have been multiple articles that i've read that make th- that you know hold a lot of tenets to state that claim i mean you know at the end of the day there are and there isn't a determinable uh link but also think about all of the ocean life that makes up the floor of the ocean because that's what it is. I mean, like, it's just all dead animals. That's yeah. what sand is, basically, right? Like, Yeah. I... And so, you know, like, it's just because we haven't found it doesn't mean that it hasn't evolutionarily existed. Right. And also, like, our ability to explore the ocean. Is very limited. Yeah, they say that, I mean, like, that's the next great frontier. We should be, you know, Elon Musk should be spending money on, you know, figuring out how we can have those sweet sweet resources under the ocean instead of fucking working people to death in lithium mines and yeah i have to dip my toes
1: in more sci-fi related around deep ocean mm. so i think there's a lot of potential there that it's absolutely terrifying yes when you understand just basic just like at
0: a certain point it's pitch black well there's sea lab 2021 but... oh yeah <laughs> there's that and then uh of course uh deep blue sea yeah
1: that's very true yeah. i think I just think it's one of those areas that I think it always can be built on as we sure. learn more and like, you get these opportunities uh, through different mediums of above ground science fiction. Yes. Like, oh, how can we start talking about that in a different way?
0: Yeah, well, there, I mean, there's something as classic as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And as right. as new technology comes out, and I was talking about this with Tim James on the first decade's dive, like how the Industrial Revolution helped dictate what type of technology was being talked about or even like thought or dreamed about you know like because now now we're you know think about 10 years previous to the you know even just like the steam engine which was adapted for a number of different reasons or even think about something like because how old are you julian i am 27 okay I'm 33, mm-hmm. so you were just on the tail end of like coming home when the street lights came on because you didn't have a cell phone, really. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So just think about that shift in our lives, where now we have this rectangle in our pockets that has literally every answer that we could ever possibly have a question to. Yeah, like this podcast. Hey, there you go. Yeah, I, I rely, I. Just, this would not exist without the internet. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but uh, you know, it's it's just interesting to me, like how that technology dictates what we dream and think about, and the more aquatic or undersea technology that's developed once we have the first true undersea lab you know like a mile under the ocean a self-sustaining or like is converting oxygen from the water into breathable oxygen and shit like that right. we already have you know like i think there was one with Kristen stewart which was super stupid like uh, right yeah right. like the undersea pod thing i think i watched it on a plane once yeah but that's, that's a, a, that's, a plane movie. Movie. <laughs> that's a <big> plane movie <laughs> for sure that's like uh i saw a good gym i like
1: gym movies I so sure I'm oh gym. yeah and then i saw the I think it's the new Godzilla movie with, like, uh, Millie Bobby Brown. Yeah. It has all, like, it has Mothra and, like, other
0: yeah. things. I'm like, that's a good gym movie. Sure. Yeah, just zone out on the treadmill or the bike. You're, yeah. Well, I would not watch this otherwise. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm in agreement. Yeah, I think that aliens exist. You know, like, they could be a number of things, like future humans coming back who have, who have discovered time travel and are trying to influence events so that their timeline persists. Could be some trans-dimensional shit where you know like much like a 2d entity would you know we would just see them as a line and vice versa for us but we're more complex and exist right. in multiple dimensions Stray-o, theory, straight theory we're like a 4d where you know like they are able to move throughout time intrinsically uh, it, there, there are a number of things, and, and you know, just because we haven't figured out a way to go faster than light, doesn't mean that there isn't a way to go faster than light I, in a ship type thing. So, like uh, entities in Alpha Centauri can, you know, be you know, just pressing a button and folding yeah. space in a way that Einstein could only cream his pants about. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, there's something uh, mind-boggling at realizing the amount of observable
0: space we've seen. To what they're actually. Which might just be a fragment. Yeah. Like uh, the likelihood is that it's just a fragment. Yeah. Because our instruments are probably pretty weak by comparison to other like developed society or or civilizations. Well, it's like
1: that fact of an astronomy. I remember taking astronomy in high school. Really cool, great class. And the fact that always blew my mind like there are more
0: star like more more stars, stars in the sky than grains of sand, sand and all the beaches in yeah. all the world i don't know if i comprehend it yeah but it's still yeah it, that is an absurd thing to even wrap your head around so like all theoretical physicists like i i wish you a very much uh happy theorizing because i just I, sometimes i it, orbital mechanics sure get it gravity wells all that kind of stuff you know like sure with it uh you know laws of thermodynamics <laughs> I, I can I can comprehend that kind of stuff, right? right. When it comes to anything beyond, like, I just, yeah. like, what they're doing in the Large Hadron Collider, I'm like, mm-hmm. how are the magnets, like, pushing them forward all collected? Like, is it, st- like, it, I, I mean, you can tell me the technical stuff and I'd nod at you, I'd be like, sure. yeah, totally, sure. But, like, what they're doing and how, like, the, the sensors are picking up the various Part particles right is like it blows my mind well it's like even that the new
1: telescope they came out with uh i can't remember what's come but it's like seeing different parts of space yeah the web the web yeah like i couldn't imagine being some like a physicist or an astronomist or whatever it may be who's interested in that space and like seeing those images like oh what i was thinking is it's wrong <laughs> you know it could be like 10 years of your thesis on something to be like
0: oh i'm wrong now Well, but you know what? Like that's super valuable in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you were a true scientist, you welcome that I'm wrong because now you know that you are not living in ignorance. Yeah. For the scientific method. Absolutely. And there's also the tenet of nullius in verba, which is Latin for on the word of no one. So discover things for yourself. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's the pure driving, like thought behind science. You know, it's interesting how we're talking about all these great advancements, but like the water and floods is still fucking like. <laughs> Shortening the life expectancy, yeah, in, in ways that you like to talk about, incomprehensible. <laughs> there's gonna <laughs> like, there's gonna be a time when our
1: generation they'll be like, hey, we figured out what cancer came from. They'll be, like, they'll be like, oh, it
0: was the the kid cuisine from your local. You're like, oh, that makes sense. Oh no, like, we don't have to wait for a future. I can tell you that now. No. That's exactly what's yeah, well, all the p- preservatives and shit like that. are are yeah. not supposed to be consuming. It's Please. gonna be something to be like, of course, that's what it was. And it's so crazy that, like, we... Because we grew up in this society, right? Yeah. And preservatives were not... The way that they are now, were not necessarily a thing a hundred years ago. Not at all. So it's like, I mean, we were doing other shitty shit, you know, like yeah. wearing and stuff, and, you we know... we like, tuberculosis. Right, that. yeah. I mean, you know, so, like, look, you, that's just proof positive that you can't have <laughs> your cake and eat it, too, yeah, as yeah. you'll likely die of some sort of disease. I'll have to... I have to <laughs> ask this one question. Yeah. Have you... You've seen Get Out? I
1: have seen it once. I need okay. to watch it again. And so, you know, the and the big plot twist or the big ending, right? Yes. Like what's happening? Yes. So I have to ask your question in terms of, okay. I look at that as science fiction of like placing your spirit or your mind in someone else's body. Yeah. Do you think that that is something that is being tested or will be tested in the future?
0: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. So if we're if we're looking at things like Neuralink and how we're going to have a higher level of cognitive interconnectivity, right. we are one hundred percent. First off, there were there have been uh, trials and attempts at this in a purely psychological sense with things like psychic driving. Uh, so to bring it to a technological level, yes, I think it's one hundred percent the next thing. And I think that being able to use technology to implant memories or suggestions. But this is more, like, because he's trying to escape, you know, like, mentally. Yeah, but I think, like,
1: the one thing in Get Out is the the grandpa, Yeah, his big claim to fame is he loses to Jesse Owens in the qualifiers to go to the Olympics. And (laughs) then he wants to have that athleticism and whatnot as he gets older. Mm. And it's more physical. But I think that's the tapped-in part I was going to ask the next is, like, I think the next part is, like, the ability of your thoughts and actions done through a different lens.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, they're in Black Mirror. They touch on that a little bit with like San Junipero. Do you did you ever see that episode, my yeah, fans? It, it's it's a little bit more tech driven. But it's kind of like a retirement home, if you will, where you boot into like and you you have that youthfulness again. Oh, and that's which would be great. Futurama does that, too. Although yeah. you don't get the youthfulness <laughs> back. You're just in a digital old folks home, which is the worst thing I could possibly it does imagine. Make you think that, like, that there is that Black Mirror
1: episode of where it's it evolves through the episode where it's like. You down they download or save that person's memories or traits or abilities, then it's like, oh, you can get text from them, you can get voice messages. and then you yeah. get the replica, the attic made or whatever, mm-hmm. 3D printed or whatever, and it's like too too much to handle. It's like a right. spot on, which is in the same evolutionary period of like either living in the metaverse or you're taking all this data we have on our phones taking you know chat gbt or ai voices from
0: this podcast and being like i have Reese, i have julian i have yeah well voco and things like that right. we don't even know what we're looking with deep fakes and voco we don't know what we're looking at or listening to anymore it's gonna and, be a and i think that our we're our brains are too big for our britches mm-hmm. we have all these great ideas but like we're just going to develop ai for the sake of developing ais to say that we're doing it without really really evaluating the consequences in a practical sense like we've talked about you know, time and time again, you know, what are the ethics behind AI and how far should we develop it and what kind of autonomy we should give it? Right. Because, you know, we could end up with a regular Skynet on our, hands. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's totally plausible.
1: So- or, yeah, or you get to the the AI starts to understand something and then it is communicating in some mm-hmm. way either with itself or it gives us a way to communicate with a potential life form elsewhere and you get a, a highly intelligent, that's the thing in NOPE, is that Gene Jacket is
0: a highly yeah. intelligent oh yeah predator entity yeah yeah that like you don't see a whole lot of well we had to shut down two ais that were talking to each other because they started creating their own language and script language that we were being oh, able to exactly. not understand so they pulled the plug on those fuckers and it's like oh no It went with quantum computing as well so the advancements of like bio engineered technology yeah. with quantum computing with AI, we are going to become obsolete so fast. Like the, the arc of technology, you know. It's... And you're also skipping—is it Moore's
1: law? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, AI, I think, is definitely skipping Moore's law. But at a
0: certain point, um, like I think you're always you start halving, and I think that's Moore's law. Yeah, it's just... every every two years the number of transistors on microchips will double. Yeah, that's that's the base. But it, but it's it's more now speaking to the pace of advancement. Yeah, you know? chat. If you can just put that on a server, it's gonna jump way past that
1: of what like maybe a a, your computer or a rig or a server can do. Yeah, and things are gonna accelerate much, much faster. Yes, it is. (laughs) And hope you know we have no no one has any clue of how you're gonna control.
0: No, we can barely control shit that we have like a pretty good idea on. I mean, we were talking about airplanes. Yes, you know. The the NCAR system or MCAS system, like, dude, if if you're ever going to fly a plane, if you're ever going to get on a plane again, do not watch that that Netflix (laughs) documentary about the 737 MAX. Oh, my God. See, it's, there's some information you just don't want to know. Right. And understand. Don't don't watch how the sausage is made, folks. Never watch how the sausage is made. Well, so Julie, what's coming up next in your comedy showcase? Like you, you're doing showcases. You you just performed, uh, or you're going to perform on Sunday at the Northwest Black Comedy Festival. Yep. I'll be at the Northwest Black Comedy Festival, which is fun. All right, curious uh, Comedy Theater, definitely check that out on
1: MLK. I'll have, uh, bagasukis. If you're in Portland on the
0: twenty eighth, Then I'm a bagasukis. Uh, Shout out Creasy Crashly, right? Yeah, I got a sick wrestling shirt for that one. Nice. Uh, uh, Oh, man. Well, we'll save it. I'm, I will wait in anticipation to yeah. see it. I'm not going to ask you what it is. But. <laughs> and then I have, I think, uh, Star
1: Power. Yeah, it's Sante. Sante on the nice. 28th of Large. March. Yeah, John. Yeah. I run a show on the third Saturday called Alley Oop. which is. Yes, fun. you do. Yep. Um, And then I have Leave Your Troubles, Emerald, Good Friday, April 4th. Sick. Oh, you're doing the one at uh, Funhouse? Yeah, yeah. So and after, great show.
0: Congrats to Chris on yes. like one year. I think that'll be the March shows that I, yeah, the next month. So nice. nice, yeah, yeah. The March shows are these, yeah, definitely. Shout out Chris Hudson, uh, coffee sip, leave your troubles. So. Um, yeah, he's a staple in the. Portland comedy scene just put up his decade he's got tenure now <laughs> not that that's what that means but it sounds good yeah I know leave your troubles at helium definitely check that out um you know all those shows and all the mics that we go to I yeah. see you at mics all the time uh lastpdx.com yeah lastpx definitely check out lastpdx.com for all of your comedy needs here in beautiful Portland Oregon and it's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks, Julian, for stopping by and talking Jordan Peele with me. Definitely. I look forward to what he's coming out with, you know, next. And what do you think it'll be? You know, I, I want to see something about cryptids. Oh. I want to see some cryptid stuff out of him. Because, yeah, I think he's hit creature feature sci-fi. Mm-hmm. He's hit, like, psychological
1: thriller yeah. and us. Or maybe yeah. more horror. I don't know. what well, you want cl- That's a tough thing. Thriller horror. Yeah. yeah. And Get Out, too, I would say. Yeah, in that way. So I think there's, yeah, I think cryptids. I think, yeah. as there's another section of horror, thriller, yeah. sci-fi that he can definitely tap into. And I think that would be, be a thing. Yeah. That'd remake. That would be fun. I,
0: he did Candyman. Yeah, he did the new Candyman. Oh, you're, oh, I have to watch that. I haven't okay. seen it either, but... Oh, I'm more uh, familiar. I love the Todd Phillips vehicle, though the the one from the
1: 90s. Yeah, it's basically, I think, a modern update with... Uh, Sick. it be good. And then I think the other project I'll, I'll plug here that I'm excited for is Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. He's writing a thriller or horror for Amazon. Sick. Uh, I believe, and so it's. I always enjoy watching comedians move from comedy... Yeah. Well, he's like, a triple threat. Yeah, into a... Thriller, I think we can say thriller, sci-fi has to be really well-written, and comedians
0: typically are well-written. Yeah. So I'm excited. For I I could see Donald Glover going for an EGOT. Yeah, I think he had. You I know, could see him on the stage. Yeah. Drawing Don the a Tony, parts. yeah. Yeah. He's just got to get the Tony. Otherwise, he's, he's with it. He's got a Grammy, right? He's got a Grammy. He's got an Emmy. He's got an Emmy. He's got... I don't know, ne- if, I don't know if he has an Oscar. We do get one. All right. I'm, I'm calling it now Donald Glover EGOT status. I agree. Within the next five years. I agree. Ooh, 10 years, 10 years, 10 years. Yeah give myself 10 years <laughs> all right well uh, speaking of mics i'm gonna go do the the growlers mic right now you want to hang around tight cool man thanks again always a great time hanging out with julian he's a rad and really funny guy so make sure to check him out around portland and the pacific northwest when you get the chance We won't be gathering by the water cooler for any facts this week, so you'll just have to go thirsty until next week, where we'll be hopping into the Wayback Machine once more for a trip into the roaring 20s. Oh boy, mister, is this the 1920s? No, it's the Conspiracy Corner. You know we couldn't talk about Nope and an entity like Jean Jacket without talking about these new balloons that's doing stuff up in the sky. Have you heard about this? Have you seen this? Look, I don't care what anybody says, Jay Leno is absolutely an op. Okay, so what is the deal with the spy balloons then? Here's what CBS News is spoon-feeding the public. Starting in late January this year, an object was detected entering U.S. airspace near Alaska, then over Canada before making its way over to Montana before making a run for the East Coast, which is kind of scary given we don't know what kind of payload this thing truly had or is capable of having. The spy balloon's height was comparable to the Statue of Liberty, about 200 feet tall with a jetliner-sized payload, Assistant Secretary of Defense Melissa Dalton told senators during a hearing on February 9th. It had collection pod equipment, including high-tech equipment that could collect communication signals and other sensitive information, and solar panels located on the metal truss suspended below the balloon, according to government officials. It had equipment that was clearly for intelligence surveillance, including multiple antennas that were likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications, according to a statement by a senior State Department official, aka a career liar. Video of the balloon showed small motors and multiple propellers that allowed the Chinese operators to actively maneuver the balloon over specific locations, according to a senior administration official, and it was steered by a rudder. The balloon's payload weighed more than a couple thousand pounds, according to General Glenn Van Herk, commander of NORAD. On February 5th, recovery of the balloon began. It was delayed by a day after it was shot down because of rough seas off the coast of South Carolina. A U.S. official said later that underwater pictures of the debris field showed the wreckage remarkably intact, given its fall from roughly 60,000 feet. The debris field is about seven miles wide, and the debris is in relatively shallow water at about 47 feet deep, according to the senior military official. The search for additional objects shot down off the coast of Alaska and over Canada is continuing, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said during a White House briefing, because the remains are located in remote terrain, making them hard to find. He said the object over Lake Huron is in deep water. Kirby said that the U.S. did not detect that any of the objects were sending communication signals before they were shot down. The U.S. also assessed that they showed no signs of self-propulsion or maneuvering and were not manned. The likely hypothesis is that they were being moved by prevailing winds, Kirby said. He also stated on MSNBC on Monday that the objects were flying at between 20,000 and 40,000 feet. Most commercial aircraft fly at about 30,000 feet. These objects were also shot down, he said, because they were much smaller than the Chinese balloon. Look, it's not the size of the balloon, it's how you float it. No one has claimed ownership of any of them, and the U.S., Kirby said, has not yet been able to gain access to the unmanned objects, in part because of weather conditions and also because the one shot down Sunday over Lake Huron is currently underwater. There may be completely benign and totally explainable reasons for why these objects were flying over North America in the first place, but the US won't know whether that's the case until they are retrieved, Kirby said. Sounds like a load of crap to me. Let's get down to the truth and see what Reddit has to say about all this. Pee Wee Spirit Animal posits that the balloon was being pushed along by wind turbines on the ground. My cousin saw the heads of them shift and rotate to push the balloon along. That really just confirms that the Chinese are behind global warming and are using wind turbines to push around their highly advanced and undetectable spy balloons. This fact obviously contradicts the lamestream media saying that, quote, prevailing winds were causing the course. Bushemian and Rhapsody suspects that it was full of anthrax or perhaps a gender reveal gone awry. And Weird Old Hobo 1978 comes through with this incredibly lucid insight. For the people asking why they didn't shoot it down sooner, think of it this way. The Air Force was tracking the balloon pretty much as soon as it was launched. They had plenty of time to obscure any intelligence it was trying to gather. And if it was indeed gathering intelligence, there was plenty of time to hush chatter along its flight path because balloons aren't exactly quick. If it was taking photographs, it really wouldn't capture anything a low-orbit satellite couldn't, and China has plenty of low-orbit satellites in play. Now that we've had a few days to observe one, we know what their operational capabilities are. And if we can recover the hardware, we'll know what information they were trying to gather. But between you and me, I wouldn't be surprised if this was just trolling us to provoke a reaction. Intelligence agencies do stuff like that all the time. And if anyone has an insight into what intelligence agencies are doing, it's weird old hobo 1978. Either way, there are going to be more and more objects in the sky in order to distract you from the aliens that are all hanging out up there. Just know that when our overlords do make themselves known, we're all fucked, which is kind of nice, you know? we your way through the decade with guest comedian Robert Gresham as we look at novels, publications, and films that defined sci-fi throughout one of the most influential decades of the 20th century. You can catch that episode airing Tuesday, February 28th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Download the Shady Pines Radio app for Android or iOS for access to far-out content from right here in Portland, Oregon. I'd like to thank my sources for this week's episode, including ScreenRant.com, IMDB.com, Collider.com, and of course, Wikipedia.com, because if it's on Wikipedia, there's got to be something going on with it, right? Some sort of psyop. For all of your comedy needs around town, make sure to check out LaughsPDX.com. You can find a mic show happening every single night of the week, but in the meantime, get your comedy fix with this hilarious set from guest comedian Julian Gray. Live long and prosper, you nerds.
1: Hey Julian Greg. Hey, give it up for dinner one time, everyone. Woo-hoo! Give it up for your weight staff for holding it down tonight. Yeah. This is good. This is good. Anyone in here ever buy bootleg DVDs?
0: Yeah!
1: You're from Tacoma? Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, uh, I uh, used to use my allowance when I was six to buy bootleg DVDs. And if you aren't familiar with bootleg DVDs, sometimes a man would take his camera into the movie theater and film the screen. And around 2003, 2004, I got a copy of Spider-Man 2. And during that screening, a fight broke out in the theater. Uh. And the man filming the movie leaned over and said, looks like you got a two for one. <laughs> and that's how bootleg DVDs work. And so where I used to buy my bootleg DVDs was behind a Food for Less, behind a Ramada Inn. If you aren't familiar with the Ramada Inn, it's like if the public prison system had a hotel <laughs> And so I was digging in this guy's trunk, got a couple movies for myself, got a movie for my mom, and I was like, oh, she'll love that. That's Tim Burton's James and the Giant Peach. And he goes, ah, nah, you're too old for that. I was like, no, it's for my mom. He's like, oh, that's cool. I was like, that's weird. And so I get the DVD, and I walk home that night, and we turn down the lights, and we put in Tim Burton's James and the Giant Peach, or so I thought. What we watched was Tim Burton's James and the Giant Peach an adult parody porno a six-year-old watched with his mom and we did what any mother and son would do, didn't talk about it <laughs> and so we devised a plan because you can't return bootleg DVDs to distract the 18-year-old at our local video store. While she distracted my I put it on the shelf and I thought that was the end and then a few weeks later I go to my friend's house to play. He's like, oh, we're having a movie night I see it on the table <laughs> As I'm backing out, he goes, "You guys are gonna love this movie. You love Tim Burton." And I go, "Not anymore." <laughs> I used to get my allowance a weird way when I was six. I needed a job. I had a single mother. Shout out single moms. And at the time, I asked my mom's boyfriend to work at the office. And the funny thing about the office is that it was a strip club. So little six-year-old Gary Coleman-looking Julian was wiping off tables doing dishes, blowing off the pixie dust from the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know you what's know, up. And it was cool because you got paid in a ton of money because it's in ones, but they're kind of like Monopoly money. They're like different colors because of the glitter, and they smell like shea butter. And I used to use that money for our ice cream man. And the hood I grew up in, we didn't have like an ice cream truck. We didn't have the tamale man, hell, we didn't have Jehovah's Witness, right? And the way I knew the ice cream man was coming is that he'd play on his speaker, 50 cents candy shop. <laughs> <laughs> so you just hear from the hood, I'll take you to the candy shop. And all these kids would run out. And I used to be last for some reason, but I used to skip the line because he liked the way my money smelled. <laughs> And as I got older, I moved to Portland and they have like a lot of fancy ice cream places like Seattle, and went to this place called Salt and Straw. And they have this flavor called Grandma Petunia's Rainbow Sprinkled Baby Cakes. <laughs> and much like he, I was like, the fuck? <laughs> and so I asked a nice ice cream sommelier to give me the flavor for a And she goes, Imagine the happiest birthday you've ever had. I was like, I can taste that. She's like, but no one shows up. (laughs) I was like, damn. Except for Grandma Petunia with the bike you've always wanted. And she whispers to me, it's the sadness that makes the flavor. (laughs) And as I walked out, I got super confused. And I was like, fuck, I'll take a pint. Uh, I struggled to sleep sometimes, but like... I listen to the local jazz radio. Any jazz heads in here? Jazz radio is weird in the way they describe music, and this is the only way I can I can do it. It goes a little something like this. Thanks for tuning in to 22.1, The Ball Pits. <laughs> it's your favorite cradle robber, DJ Huey Neutron. You know, what did you just say? <laughs> I got a treat for y'all tonight. It's an undiscovered track. Found in the basement of a Chuck E. Cheese. Like, is that where they're getting records now? The only way I can describe this track is like driving on a hot summer day in your brand newish 1976 El Camino, but the AC's broken. And your hand's in the passenger seat with a cold Sprite, and one hand out the window. You're like, how is this guy driving? <laughs> It's almost like the best date you've ever had you go to a steakhouse in your burgundy below her suit you get a seat in the back and maybe you get lucky that night and then she texts you four months later she's pregnant and she's keeping it and then 19 years later you've raised the kid you've clothed him you even start to like him a little bit and he gives you a 23 and me for christmas and you find out he's not yours You've given up all your hopes and dreams for this kid, and now you're spiraling on live radio with a DJ. <laughs> I fucking hate this song. Here's John Coltrane's in a sentimental mood. <laughs> Anyone married in here? Woo! How long? Twenty-three years. Damn, Jordan here. That's what's up, man. I don't know. That's what's up. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, I don't know how i ever. I've been married a couple of years, and marriage is for quitters. <laughs> like, my wife, growing up, loved Keith Ledger and Orlando Bloom. And I look like a rhythmically challenged Lionel Richie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, that right. I was wondering what you look like. Yeah, that's it. I got you. <laughs> And uh, I trusted for the longest time she was baking me these treats and I found out she was smuggling them from the Trader Joe. And so she took me on a date to Trader Joe's once. I didn't have enough money when I was younger to go there so she went on a date. And I walk in, I see one family with an adopted black child. (laughs) Five minutes later I see a second family. Within ten minutes I've seen three families with adopted black children where I had to stop in the aisle and go is Trader Joe having a sale on uh, <laughs> USA free organically raised children in the back? Because I missed out, man. You guys enjoy Black History Month? Uh, I'm in an interracial marriage, and so I had to teach my wife what a do-rag was, right? <laughs> and I uh, I was looking for a cool color, I was looking for a blue do-rag. And I got a weird internet ad. That was a thin blue line, Blue Lives Matter direct. <laughs> is that for? <laughs> I just imagine there's a mom in the Midwest. who like, hey, Janice, check out my sweat cap. As it bounces in arterial, shot. <laughs> chops Hey, y'all, I've been Julian. Give it up for Johnny, everyone.